Hey everyone, welcome to the eighth episode of Punch Card Investing. It's been almost two months, two full months, eight full weeks for sure. It's been great being on this Punch Card Investing journey. And as a reminder to everyone, be sure to smash that like button, smash that subscribe button, and join our Discord if you haven't already in the description below. There's a link to that. Karan, I think I'm getting some feedback from you right now. Um, <laughs> but anyways, our topic for today is about cognitive biases. This is an idea that Brad threw out there. And when you're investing, you know, you're going to come in with any sort of bias into it. But being able to, one, identify that bias to understand where you might be missing something is super important. Um, but identifying it is the, is the challenge. So we kind of wanted to talk about some common biases that, that might get in the way of, the, of an investing strategy and all that good stuff. And also, we'll be talking about Pershing Short Taunting Holdings. So anyone who has questions about that, get those ready. Uh, but let's start with biases. Uh, Brad, since this was your topic, uh, why, don't, why don't you uh, kick it off? I'd love to hear what you had to say about this. Okay. Well, basically what I did is I went back into Charlie Munger's talk that he delivered in 1995 around the psychology of human misjudgments. And I found one in here that seemed pretty relevant to where we're at in the market now. Uh, and it's bias from contrast caused distortions of sensation, perception, and cognition. So uh, the example that Charlie Munger gave uh, was from Cialdini's book, Influence. And it's where uh, the example is you have three buckets of water, okay? One's hot, one's cold, and one is room temperature. So you have the students stick their hand in the, in the hot water, left hand in the hot water, uh, right hand in the cold water, and then you remove both hands and put them in the room temperature water. And of course, you know, one feels hot, one feels cold, even though it's it's the same temperature, right? Uh, and it's it's the contrast that, that creates this influence on our perception. And, you know, the, the thing that that's reminding me of these days in the market is how, you know, it seems like a lot of this short-term behavior is being rewarded, uh, chasing the story stocks, the cryptos. And so that's, that's the environment that we're immersed in. And, you know, that, that can really have an impact on, you know, decisions that we make. If, if we aren't really aware of, you know, what, what hands we have in different buckets, you know, what, what are the buckets that are, current market um, is, is serving up. So I just thought that was an interesting, you know, bias uh, for, for where we are today in the markets. So curious if you guys have any thoughts on that one. <laughs> Realize Jack, that's muted there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it sounds like um, it's more just a lack of experience across the board. Um, you can be in the market for six months and have a ki killer of, of six months um, and then think that you're just un untouchable, but you haven't okay. seen or been through anything difficult yet. Um, and that's, that's where the, uh, that, that's where the uh, men from the boys are separated. And, 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 and obviously that doesn't, that doesn't happen all the, all the time. Um, those tough periods to get through it um, as value investors, it's kind of like we're playing for that, that one year of, of 10 
that's brutal, but separates value and creates that outsized return that, you, that you'd be going for with a typical sort of punch card style investing. At least that's how I kind of look at it. Um, mm-hmm. You could be keeping up with the market for 10 years and, or you could be uh, lagging behind the market for nine years. But in that year 10, if you, you have that, that perfect value portfolio, it could pivot. And ideally if it's constructed, well, that's where you make your big returns. Um, but you got to have patience for that, of course. And six months ain't going to cut it most of the time. Yeah. And I think that's something that Tobias Carlyle kind of talks about a lot well, as well with his strategy that's a real deep value approach to investing. And he's had five or six years where he's been in the hole. It's been a terrible run, mm-hmm. um, but he's still holding on strong. He's starting. He thinks there might be a switch happening over the past few months or so. I think he touched on that when he talked to you, Tom, as well. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, it's just staying, being confident to keep that strategy going because if you switch out, then that's when you can start to see some big losses if the market does mean revert or something like that. Exactly. Mm. For sure. Oh, by the way, guys, I forgot to mention it at the beginning of the show, but uh, we were deciding that because we just reached a thousand subscribers, which is fantastic. Thank Mm. you all. We have decided to do a giveaway for uh, in celebration of this great milestone. Um, And for those of you who might be newer to the channel, um, you may not have seen Karan's excellent shameless cloner mugs, uh, but we're going to be giving away one of those mugs. We also have them for sale in the description below. If you want to pick one up right away, don't want to wait for this giveaway, go ahead and do that. <laughs> um, but in order to, to enter into this giveaway, all you got to do is at the end of this live stream, so you can do it tomorrow or whenever, um, leave a comment on the video saying where you were watching from. I see the chat is lively right now talking about where you guys are from. It's awesome because we have this worldwide audience and definitely interesting to see where um, most of our viewers are coming from or not even most, just all the different places our viewers are coming from. So to reiterate, if you want, if you want to get one of uh, Quran shameless cloner mugs, does anyone have one so you can show the camera? Um, if anyone wants to get one of those mugs, there it is with the Monish Rai mustaches uh, on, on the sheep. <laughs> That'd be fantastic. Like Dolly, the, Dolly, the sheep. So um, all you have to do is leave a comment saying where you are watching from. And then on next week's live stream, we'll pick a winner randomly uh, and only one comment will count. So you can't just spam it. Don't try to do that though. More comments, the merrier, I suppose. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that's all you got to do. Leave a comment where you're from and then you can enter to win. Uh, a free Dolly mug and we'll send it to you. So um, be on the lookout for that. Anyways, back to biases. Who wants to go next? Yeah, I can jump in quickly if you want. Um, mine's only a, a just a nice quick one. The bias I'm talking about is the bandwagon effect or just group thinking essentially, mm-hmm. which I think is probably the most common one. And we kind of just touched on it within Brad's answer and Jack talked about it as well. But just when the majority of people are taking one approach, to kind of remain contrarian and go the opposite. I guess it even ties in with um, be greedy when others are fearful, the Warren Buffett quote. When the market's going strong and it's rising quickly, everyone kind of jumps on the bandwagon and rides these growth stocks. Um, And the same on the way down, everyone becomes fearful and sells out. Whereas if you can keep that contrarian approach and try and, I guess, think for yourself, um, that's where you can see some outsized returns. But I think it's even more difficult on a smaller scale that where it comes problematic for me is even within the value community of investors, like all of us here and some of the people I follow on Twitter and even some of the best investors, I kind of copy in a way what they're doing. I learn from them. 
but you almost have to take that one step further and be contrarian to even that, which I think is really, really hard to do in investing. Mm. You could easily yeah. you could easily fall into a, a value bias in itself, um, where yeah. you think that one particular value investor's approach, or even just value in general, is the only approach, and that's a that's a bias in itself that could that could run you into some trouble if you, if you're doing things recklessly. I've yeah, even struggled in. Oh, you go, Tom. Yeah, I was just I was just going to say I feel like I'm um, someone who's maybe even like overly aware of trying to not follow the crowd to the point where I almost pay no attention to what the crowd's doing. And it sort of reminds me of that. I'm going to butcher this quote, but it's that Ben Graham quote that you're not right or wrong because the crowd agrees or disagrees with you. You're right or wrong because your facts and your reasoning are right. And mm-hmm. I think sometimes the crowd can be right. And I, and um, that's not always the case. And it's probably, um, it's probably rare that these hot stocks are actually um, justified in some of their price movements. But I think occasionally they can be right. So um, I'm well aware of this myself and I'm just trying not to be overly aware of it, if that makes sense. And I was going to say the other way it some, sometimes affects me is when I'm looking to enter position, I kind of like to see someone else, another great investor that owns the stock, which kind of comes into cloning a little bit. But for my best performance in an investment being Kelly Partners Group, that's the one investment in my portfolio where I don't know a big investor that holds that and it just happened to work out the best. So I think it's hard to like build that conviction completely. So you can go and do, sometimes I do months of research on the stock, but I still like to see that one other person that I know is a great investor that holds the position as well, which I don't think you necessarily have to do if you do put the work in. Mm. Agreed. Cool. Shall I go next? Go for it. Sweet. Well, I've got a couple. I've got... um confirmation bias and then also anchoring bias which i had to actually look up the technical term of the bias that i'm aware that i have and i think that that correctly is labeling myself so um in terms of confirmation bias this is again one of those ones i think i've been potentially like overly aware of um and for me it's come down to uh things like not necessarily discussing all the stocks that i own on a platform like YouTube because I don't want to put my thoughts out there and kind of lock them into my head and prevent myself from rethinking them and being able to kind of change my mind tomorrow. So that, that's one that I've been aware of and, and I'm actually kind of changing my thoughts on it a little bit. So, you know, Brad and I, for example, have done the Heritage Growth Properties live streams and I think there's a risk of confirmation bias in yourself when you put your ideas out there and your thesis out there on a particular stock. Um But what I've realized from doing that, and I've heard Bill Brewster talk about this a little bit as well, is often when you do put those ideas out there on a public platform, you get um, a lot of really good feedback from people that potentially know a lot more about the business than you do. So, um, you know, Brad and I have had the chance to speak to some people behind the scenes about SRG. Um, You know, everyone watching the live streams has asked a bunch of questions that perhaps Brad and I hadn't considered before. So I'm sort of it's one of those biases that I, that I want to be aware of, but I'm also starting to um, kind of stack up like, like the pros and cons of putting your thoughts out there, but also getting some really useful feedback. So that was the first one. The second one I had was um, anchoring bias, um, and that's mainly related to prices, actually. So I found myself in the past, um, you know, I've been a big fan in a couple of situations of, say, averaging down on an investment, for example. So 
I'll buy at a particular price. If the price goes down and I'm still kind of confident in my thesis, I'll be willing to buy more. But for whatever reason, I struggle a lot more with adding to a position if the price goes up a little bit, even if it's something tiny like 5% or something for whatever reason. Um, it just feels like wrong and, and deep in my soul to, <laughs> to average up on a, on a stock sometimes. So um, that's what I'm trying to be more aware of. I mean, who really cares if a stock goes up 5% when you're still trying to buy it if you think it's like, you know, 60% below intrinsic value or something massive, you know. So um, those are a couple that that I think about. That one you just touched on is definitely one of the hardest. And I think um, on Bill Brewster's most recent podcast, he talked with the guy that turned, I forget his name, but he turned $80,000 into $1.2 billion or something crazy. Um, and he talked about exactly that where he would, he would add to his winners and just cut his losses, which kind of, if you're thinking value-based investments, that doesn't seem like the right thing to do. If a stock that you think is high quality gets cheaper, you'd want to add to it. But I guess, yeah, that's a tough one where you kind of toss it up in my mind anyway. Yeah, it's the whole don't cut the flowers to water the weeds kind of idea, right? Yeah. Peter Lynch, is that? I think so, Yeah. <laughs> All right. What was Who's your first next? one again? Sorry, there was something I wanted to add to your first one. But yeah, confirmation bias. So, like, putting your ideas out there publicly, I think. Yeah. So, channel, I find that hard because a lot of people that comment, even come into my Discord and talk with me, they like the same stocks that I like. I'm like, yeah. I kind of want more criticism to these stocks, but they find my videos because I'm posting about Redbubble or VQS or Kelly Partners Group. And then they join up yeah. to kind of just conf yeah, confirm my bias exactly that. That one is really hard. Yeah, one, for sure. Yeah, for sure. one thing I really enjoy. So I put out uh, sort of a Micron video, and then I put out a video why Micron sucks, just to like balance it out. I like it. <laughs> and I love, I love that people they find my micro why Micron sucks video, and they're like, "Yeah, see, like you don't know what you're talking about." I'm like, "Well, <laughs> you, you didn't watch the video." And so that was kind of fun to to see who comes out of the woodwork when when you do kind of both sides. It's it's really interesting. It, it's That's incredibly. Idea, I might have to start doing that. It's incredibly unusual for someone to search out why this is bad when they when they think they're getting close to making a decision. They're typically mm -hmm. going to look for why is this a good idea. It, it's so like. That's just the way like any search engine is going to be geared towards. It's going to be geared towards the positive because that's pe that's what people mostly search. Um, it's it's hard to search. Um, you know what? Yeah, why is Micron bad? You're gonna look up why is Micron good or what is Micron. You know that, that, that's typically just what our natural inclination. We're positive in that way, at least when times are good, which is when people tend to invest more. Um, when really, if you could often be better served by understanding understanding that negative side, uh, even understanding the negative side first before you get into the positives. So then you have that sort of, you have that sort of negative bias going into it, which can help keep you grounded a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. I forget which, I think it was um, Andrew Walker's podcast, yet another value podcast or whatever. He mm -hmm. was uh, interviewing someone about Twitter, right? This, this person had invested in Twitter and what really intrigued me, this guy, he started as a Twitter bear. Like he hated the company. He thought this, this is a terrible investment. And over time, you know, he, he kind of came around to the other side. And so I, just hearing that, I was like, oh, I, I really want to hear what this guy has to say about Twitter because that's a, an unusual you know, perspective to come from, really mm. not liking a company and then actually investing in it. 
Yeah, that, that reminds me of Pabri talking about his Fiat Chrysler investment actually as well. He's mm. like, the auto business sucks, <laughs> but I yeah. spent three months on it and couldn't find a reason why not to buy it. So right. um, I like that. And Which was a cloning thing, right? He saw, I think, Einhorn, maybe Buffett had been buying into autos, and so that's what got yep. him interested. Yep. Are there any online platforms that you guys use where you, know, you can look at the other side, say like Conoff, Berkshire and Fairfax, or? Are there any other websites that you use? Yeah, well, Value Investors Club. Yeah, I Value Investors Club. Good for that. The the short thesis and and long write ups on there. So that's good. The the hard thing with Value Investors Club is often you'll look up a stock and it might have four or five write ups, but they'll be spread over like ten years or something. So it's a little bit hard to get like a really recent short thesis and long thesis. But um, Value Investors Club is good. Corner of Berkshire and Fairfax is good. Um, even Twitter, Seek, actually. I'm starting Seeking to find Alpha stuff. is another one if you haven't used it before. Seeking Alpha is great. Yeah, yeah Seeking mm. Alpha is pretty, like there's a lot of write ups there. So you kind of can get, assuming it's a somewhat popular stock, you can get a lot of opinions over a short time period. But yeah, just like you touched on, Tom, I think Twitter is one of the best places to go. Mm-hmm. And then that'll redirect you to whatever other website, which is one of the problems with Twitter, is they don't take advantage of exactly that. <laughs> I, I hear eToro is okay too, Karan. What, do you want to do a pitch for that? Yeah, so on eToro, <laughs> they don't really comment on, on a lot of stocks. But um, yeah. yeah, I use a lot of Facebook groups. Like I kind of just post an idea and I'm like, okay, you know, rip it apart. And it's hmm. worked out. <laughs> so Maybe Reddit as well. Oh, we lost our host. Yeah, we've lost <laughs> the show. The show Jack, goes but- on. Yeah, Jack's having major internet problems. If yeah. anyone's wondering, he was like, he was, he was um, setting this up, working off his neighbor's Wi-Fi or something. So I must have given out. All right, with, with who's permission. up next? With permission, of course. Yes. Karan, maybe. Yeah. Um, sure. I want to talk about restraint bias. Hmm. So that has more to do with posi- position sizing. So a lot of the times, whenever you have a high conviction idea, you tend to pile into that idea, and I know I'm, I've done this too, and this is a bias of mine, where literally, you know, I kept adding to my highest conviction stock, and maybe it works out, you know, when you're dealing with very small sums, but I think it's kind of a bias that'll kind of either get your portfolio going really, like, doing incredibly well, or kind of crashing and burning, you know, if your greatest conviction idea doesn't work out, um, if there's that little probability that it doesn't work out in it doesn't your entire portfolio goes down so that's restraint bias so restraint bias says that we hold back from our highest conviction ideas or what it, what exactly is the the restraint bias sure. so so it's about when um people are basically trying to pile into the largest ideas so uh-huh. in a way it's kind of greed okay you, know, you say you want more of a good thing like suppose you found this a company that's for sure going to be a winner, right? Short term or intermediate term. And you just keep piling into it. That's kind of the bias. So the restraint is like the antidote to the bias, it sounds like. Like the restraint is, we need restraint. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Gotcha. Hmm. Cool. Yeah. I've, I've found myself, found myself starting to fall into that trap as well. Um, like I think the the one of the things I've changed sort of recently is when I first buy into a stock, I try and not 
make it too big of a position initially because I do like to average down and that sort of thing. Because I have found um, at least once in the past, I've taken a fairly sizable position, price has gone down, I want to add more, and then price goes down and you want to add a bit more. And all of a sudden, it's like 30% of the portfolio <laughs> or something. And you're like, well, you take a step back and you're like, wow, I really did not want that to happen. But I mean, <laughs> my cost basis is lower. So <laughs> yeah, it's an easy trap to fall into. This is something I was even like asking Frank about, like in terms of Kelly Partners. I know it's like his largest position, 40% of the portfolio, but I was like, why is it not more? Like if you have the conviction, so I still am subject to the bias, wherein when you keep adding to the largest position, highest conviction stock. So it's mm-hmm. yeah, with, to be aware of it. Yeah. With Kelly Partners in particular, I, I kind of thought about that. I just kind of did a bit of a restructure in my portfolio. I did my first trim on Twitter, um, added a new position. And I was still just looking at Kelly Partners at 40%. And I'm like, I have more conviction in that than every other position in my portfolio. I could almost sell everything and add it to Kelly Partners Group. Like on a conviction level, that's how, what I would do. But then I have that mindset where I'm like, no, I have to somewhat diversify. <laughs> but whether or not that's true, it might prove out to be um, the wrong decision. But I don't know. I have to be somewhat safe with my money. And another like, yeah. previous uh, investment that I had, literally every time I got my monthly salary, I was kind of just like, whatever I had saved in was completely going into that one company. <laughs> so, And that went on for like almost six months. So it can be very okay. risky. Better think, that. But, sorry? Better, better that than buying... Starbucks, <laughs> Starbucks coffees, that is, not the stock. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Three guesses on the company Karan's talking about. That's why I didn't mention it. <laughs> I didn't mention it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the name of this. Yes. <laughs> Just a I wonder how many understand right. that reference. <laughs> <laughs> the hardcore will understand. I don't know how you'll go pulling these com- comments up, Jack, with your internet, but we've got after a, after dinner investor in here again, his meal, double burger with pickles, Ooh. onion, bacon, and fries. A very yeah. small custard and some diet it. Pepsi. My man is back. I'm going to need a nap just reading that. <laughs> I hope this I hope this guy's doing like intermittent fasting or something and that's like <laughs> his one meal a day because that could cause some problems long term. <laughs> hey, I mean, it's worked for... It, it's worked for uh, Warren Buffett. Warren, he's, right? yeah, Warren. His, his diet is absolutely disgusting, <laughs> but like, look, he's in his nineties, like, still yeah. doing fine, I guess. Yeah, that's that's the ultimate cloning. <laughs> um, <laughs> Shameless cloning the diet of Warren Buffett. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, be careful with that. Not not yeah. not diet advice. <laughs> <laughs> There's another comment just above that um, from Kath. Karthik, um, what about the bias that the methodology that worked earlier might work later too? So I guess that's a hard one to kind of juggle too. It's like I'm kind of relying on strategies that work in the past. So mm-hmm. I guess you could think I, about this, that. With This is what I was going to talk about a bit. Um, I call it the um, when all you know, like when all you know how to use is a hammer, everything you see is nails. It's like kind of a like good euphemism for it. Um, and like I, I, I'm applying it to real estate just because that's 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 my bias, I suppose. Um, I, I like to. It sounds better when I say it's my expertise, <laughs> but but it's really a bias. Um, uh, when it comes to picking a market, picking a, a type of real estate, a single family home versus a multifamily home, like I'm 
pretty comfortable single single family homes. I've done a deal there. I've done a condo as well. So like I have some comfort comfort there, but in that bias, I could become almost too comfortable and I'm missing opportunities elsewhere because sure it's worked in the past, but because I'm so comfortable with that working, I might be missing greater opportunities somewhere else that could produce a much higher return or, or would otherwise be easier or something like that. Um, so always being open-minded enough to keep learning about new areas in any sector, not just real estate, but in, in stock sector, maybe you had, uh, I guess in Bill Ackman's case, he's had great experience with uh, restaurants, but is he missing opportunities elsewhere because maybe he's overly focusing on restaurants? I'm not saying that's what he's actually doing. Maybe it's just a coincidence. And there is something to be said about having some competence and expertise, but where does it get to that level towards actually holding it back a bit because you're not looking at other opportunities? Yeah, that's a tricky one. It's like going deeper versus going wider. What's, you know, right. where's the higher payoff? It's, it's a, you can make arguments both ways, I think. Because, uh, like, go, go. Oh, yeah. Is that the segue? <laughs> That was that was that was my segue game coming in strong. For for those of you who might have noticed in the title, the <laughs> initial title we had did not include PSTH in it, but we decided we had to ride the wave because way early in the morning, New York time, two thirty a.m. Uh, so some, over twelve hours ago, I don't know how many hours, uh, twenty hours ago or so, um, uh, Pershing Square announced that they are acquiring, or at least they're discussing acquiring, so it's not totally confirmed, but they confirm that they are discussing, which means they're probably going to have a deal happen soon, um, to acquire 10% of Universal Music Group. And and that's not going to empty out the SPAC. They're still going to have like $1.5 billion left over, which is going to be rolled into this new weird holding company that's not really a SPAC, but it kind of is. Um, and then there's a third thing that Pershing Square... Tantine Holding shareholders will be getting, which is a rights offering for a Spark, a special purpose acquisition rights company. It's just uh, these acronyms, man. Um, oh, man. So th that's what that's the Purchase Square Tantine Holdings. The SPAC holders right now are going to get. They're going to get ten percent of Universal Music Group. They're going to get some portion of the basically new SPAC. It's just not going to be characterized as a SPAC, technically speaking. So it could shave some regulatory risk, I suppose. And then the third thing is a, uh, is a rights, a right to purchase an eventual merger through this spark, which is a lot like a SPAC, except that you don't actually have to commit money until uh, the actual deal comes forward. Then you have that. It's really like an option is the way I understand it. Um, so that that's the news. I know Karan and I both did videos on it uh, today since uh, we've been waiting a while for this. Well, it's great too. It sounds like a, a new electric vehicle company, so that should uh, boost interest <laughs> as well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Spark. <laughs> I like it. And it's a really any... confusing deal, isn't it? Yeah, that's the first thing I was going to say. Is this is a complex deal with a lot of moving parts, and it's hard to really yeah. tell the value that both parties in the deal are going to make from it. But I'm just a little and bit. I spent a little bit of time reading from um, yet another value blog, Andrew Walker, like we mentioned earlier. Um, his fund is like half focused on SPACs specifically. And um, so he's one person to listen to if you want to know about SPACs. And he's kind of been broke it, breaking it down as the days went on. But um, even he just said this is a super complex deal. And in the write-up, I'm just reading through and I'm like, I, don't, I can't even tell you whether I think it's good or not yet. 
And, and this is even before we get into valuation of, of Universal Music Group, like which theoretically is the most important thing. Um, it's just adding these layers of complexity that might even be distracting from the actual, like the core deal, which is they're buying 10% of a large company. Um, so I'm, I'm curious whether they're actually getting a good deal on Universal or not. So the one thing that Andrew Walker did talk about in that blog actually was that that is the main benefit that Ackman's getting out of it that is clear, is they paid about 20, 21 times EBITDA was the multiple they paid for Universal. Um, and their closest competitor would be um, Warner, who um, trade about 28, I think. Sorry, I've got the article up. Um, yeah, but significantly higher anyway. And really, UMG is a better quality company with some solid cash flows, probably a leader in the market. So I think they've got a good price for the company, but the 10% position and how everything else will work out is where it starts to get a bit confusing. Yeah, definitely. And it, it actually traded down um, this morning. I don't know where it closed at since my internet's been so shoddy today, um, but uh, it, it, it traded down on the news, which is kind of the opposite of what we've been seeing with most specs over the last year. Usually when a deal is announced, it pops up quite a bit. Um, that was not the case here. And I wonder if the complexity is part of that um, since it, it is confusing to kind of understand where all these parts are going to. I also think the type of shareholders might have been disappointed with Universal Music Group, even if it is a great deal. I think a lot of people that were buying into that SPAC were kind of riding the SPAC hype that was going on last year. So they yeah. might have been expecting some type of EV type tech company or something. So it could be a disappointment to some type of investors. I think a lot of those actually left um, with the kind of SPAC deflation we've seen over the last couple months that kind of came hand in hand with uh, the SEC getting a little bit more stringent or saying that they're getting more stringent on SPACs. Uh, that scared some people off, I'm, I'm sure. Um, so I don't, I don't know how many of those people were left in Pershing Square Tontine Holdings. I'm sure there were some, of course, but uh, I think a lot of them had already left if they were ever in it. They were in Tremoth SPACs instead. <laughs> And then just one other thing I'll add on the other side of the deal. Um, is it What's the CEO's name? Is it, it starts with a V, Vivendo or something. Vivendi? Um, yeah, that's right. That sounds right. Yeah. Um, they've kind of gotten some kind of tax benefit because as they spin it off, I think shareholders are going to be hit with a fairly significant tax. It would be a little bit lower now with that 10%. Um, and then you also have cash available to theoretically maybe buy back stock or do something else with if he likes to. So it does seem like a reasonable deal on both for both parties anyway. That's another thing to note with this deal is that it's not really a merger. Um, that's usually what, you, what you'd expect of the SPAC, where the SPAC itself has all the cash. The company that they're acquiring actually merges into the SPAC, and then they become one. That's it. That's not what's happening here. Instead, Pershing Sortantin Holdings is just buying a chunk of Universal, buying the stock, um, and then they still have their cash left over to go do other things with it. It's not truly a merger, um, which potentially was another thing that people weren't expecting. I certainly wasn't expecting that. And then is that why the shareholders some have some kind of opportunity to sell for $20 instead of collect being part of the deal? Is that right? There's some kind of option out? There's that redemption the, offer that's right. there. Yeah, for $20 yeah. per share, they can uh, sell it back to Bushing. Yeah, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I'd mentioned this on the um, 
video that Jack and I had done, um, the size of this pack was huge. Like, yeah, it it's no surprise that uh, you know he scaled down this pack because it's so much easier to find a deal with 1.5 billion as opposed to 4 billion. Yeah, I, I'm not surprised either. I'm not. I, I'm not surprised they didn't empty the coffers because, yeah, like finding a target with that amount of money is difficult. If you're trying to get a good deal, at least <laughs> you can find plenty of good targets and overpay. But that's obviously not the goal. Um, I'm so I'm not surprised cash was left over. I'm just kind of surprised that it wasn't actually a merger, and instead they're kind of just rolling it into another spec and another name. Um, that's how I'm interpreting it. They still have around 2.9 billion in pushing sweat on chain holdings. So. Yeah, in in total value, one point five plus one point four from the forward, forward purchase agreements. Yeah, correct. Could you explain a little bit what's going on with the the warrants? I I think I understand in that that was a big since we're both Pershing Square Holdings shareholders, not Tontine Holdings. Since Pershing Square has significant interests in the uh, forward purchase agreements and the warrants um, to get basically a discount on whatever the would be merger would have been, um, but they're kind of rotating it into a different spot, if I'm understanding that correctly. Yeah, so they're going to put out a document that is the warrant exchange offer. So it will be the price at which the warrants will convert now or will be redeemed. If you want to have them redeemed, um, that document still has to be published. So I have no idea. Yeah. They're still going to put it out. Yeah, the offer. So that adds to the complexity of everything. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yes, there's still terms yet to be decided. And and frankly, this deal isn't done. They're they're just announcing that they're going for it. Like this it could still fall apart to be clear. I I don't think it's likely, but it could happen. And plus there's the overarching risk that the SEC does something to SPACs while they're in the middle of this, um, which could happen. I don't know how likely that is, but just something to keep in mind. Yeah, the deal will be announced, like confirmed on 22nd of June. So this month, if it right. is confirmed. Yeah. Yeah. How much How much do we know about the actual financials of UMG at this point? Is it still very little? Is that all going to come out around June? So the company will be listed. So it was, so Vivendi was going to be listing um, UMG in September. That was the plan. Mm-hmm. So right. I guess around then. So in the prospectus, everything of the IPO, that's that's all we have. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah I'm not sure where yeah. um, Andrew Walker got those details on about the 20 times EBITDA multiple, but I guess he's accessing financials from somewhere. He might yeah. have seen yeah. what Tencent paid for it. So Tencent bought 20% of the company um, at a 30 billion euro valuation. Yeah, I think they got it. A 35. Yeah, I was going to say, I think they got it a little bit cheaper than build it. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I guess like, I mean, all the complexity aside, like you say, Jack, the valuation of Universal Music is probably the most important part. So it'd be interesting to see some of those figures in a bit more detail when they do come out. It kind of depends on what party you are too. I think Purging Square Holdings, the hedge fund, cares maybe even more about the warrants coming up since that's kind of the, the hidden or not so hidden value um, in this mm-hmm. whole thing. Uh, but for Pershing Square Tontine Holdings shareholders, the 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 actual acquisition probably is the most important, just just numbers wise. Yeah. What do you guys think about the new company that's being formed, the SPARC, the rights company? Oh yeah, that that's a weird one. I got nothing. <laughs> I don't I don't understand yeah. it. 
I, what does I, it mean? <laughs> my layman's understanding and just reading through the description once this morning, essentially, <laughs> um, it's uh, it it doesn't seem very different than just buying a warrant of a spec. That's kind of what it is. If I'm not if I'm not misunderstanding it, it's like you have a, a right to purchase whatever the company is. It's a five-year option, essentially. So if they make an acquisition within five years, you can exercise this option if you want to. So it just seems like a, a derivative, essentially. Um, I don't think it's anything other than that. It has a fancy acronym, too, which makes it sound more complex. I think they're going to use this money to have a series of deals. I don't think it's going to be one deal. So I've mentioned this in the previous video that... Um, I kind of see this as float. Now I'm not saying it's directly float, but similar to float in a way. So whenever he needs capital, he can raise it through a SPAC or Spark or whatever, and then use that for acquisitions in private businesses or in public markets. He's basically, yeah, he's trying to form almost like a massive VC fund. <laughs> that's that's really what it yeah. feels like. I, I think... Uh, I hesitated when you first like we're calling it float. I know we've talked about it before with Pershing Square and Ackman in general. Um, but the more I think about it, that is kind of what's going on. He's raising pools of cash that he doesn't really have to pay much for other than he's paying his reputation, I suppose. Uh, and as long as he can get a somewhat decent deal, then you can keep doing it over and over as long as people keep giving him money. And Ackman's kind of made two great decisions with having a pile of cash during um, economic crisis, I guess, the last two times that he's pulled off something big. So it's always handy to have cash in his hand when the market looks like it does. Yeah, this right, part yeah. basically gives him like a 50% cash allocation relative to the portfolio. Interesting. And but he's could, also could sort I, of... Um, go ahead, Tom. Yeah, I was just going to say he's also made a point of and some interviews I've seen with Bill Ackman recently of um, trying to set up a vehicle that almost replicates the permanent capital that Berkshire Hathaway has. So maybe he is trying to do another Berkshire Hathaway-esque kind of thing. Yeah, that's that's why they did the closed fund structure for yeah. Pershing Square rather than leave it open. Um, so yeah, mm -hmm. that would make sense. Yeah, because he used to just run a regular hedge fund, right? And it sounded like a nightmare winding that thing up. Like it took a decade, I'm pretty sure. He said it at one point to try and get the last dollar out of some of the private businesses that they had um, investments in. Should we jump into some yeah, questions? Sounds good. So if you have any questions, throw them out now. There's a couple in Let's there see. we can dive into if you like. There's one about Alibaba, I'm sure Brad would love to answer. Yeah, especially if it's why Alibaba sucks. Is that what the question <laughs> I, I can I can go on and that Alibaba comment? It's <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, above help. where you shared the punch card investing comment. It says, where do you see Alibaba in the next 10 years? Oh, yeah, can this is. company broaden its moat? Absolutely. Oh, just a reminder to everyone, if you're coming on late to the stream or skipped ahead, uh, we're doing a giveaway. Um, so at the end of this live stream, be sure to uh, leave a comment telling us where you were uh, watching from. Um, 
and that's in the comments, not in the chat. We can't count chats, unfortunately. It's got to be a comment so we can actually do a random drawing. And then you'll get a free mug, our free Shameless Cloners mug, if you end up winning. So leave that comment after the video. <laughs> there it is. There's... All right, Brad, you want to hit this question? Well, it, so it sounded like, Karan, you have some thoughts on whether they can broaden the moat. Yeah, I like what the company is doing. I mean, the CFO had mentioned that, you know, it's, it's, um, there are always going to be, there's going to be competition uh, and um, like don't expect earnings to be growing at the same rate that they are because they're investing in actually broadening their moat. So I think there's a lot of noise around Alibaba, but if you just look at the business, like cut out everything else, cut out the VIE structure, although it's very much a factor to look into, <laughs> but for a second, if you just assume that that's fine, you assume that all the numbers are correct. There's nothing that, you know, is um, very shady about this. It's a great company. And 10 years out, I mean, I don't see how they can't be more dominant than they are today. I certainly think if we're going 10 years out, that's when I think it starts to get a little bit hard. Like, I'm sure they'll be a, a much bigger company where they are than where they are today. I'm just not sure it what kind of growth they can achieve per year for 10 years. If we're talking five years, I'm much more confident in that investment idea, which is kind of what confused me a little bit with Monish Prabhra's position. Obviously, he's thinking differently than I am. But um, the further we go out, just because of the sheer size of the company and with competition kind of hitting at those margins, I think it gets – the further you go, the less conviction I can see in the company. Mm. Yeah, the the other – I guess question from an investing perspective is does it really matter like given where the current price is at if they can't grow as fast as they have done in the past? Yeah, they certainly don't need to keep growing at the 45% that they have for the past 10 years. Um, mm -hmm. If they can even hit 15, you should be happy as a shareholder, particularly when they're undervalued right now. Not yeah, it's a, <laughs> it's a super confusing business though. Like I'm... I haven't had much time to look into it in the last week or two, but I'm trying to get my head around it. And that thing's just, have you guys seen just the enormous list of subsidiaries Alibaba pumps out? It's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> They've got a new subsidiary a week. Like that, I'm barely exaggerating when I say that. That's just crazy. <laughs> Some of the businesses they're pumping out. Yeah, what are your thoughts on one. this whole thing, Brad? It's hard to understand, I think. Mm. What's that, Tom? Right. What's your thoughts on this? Because Barb is a pretty sizable position of yours, isn't it? It is. Yeah. And uh, largely for that reason, I'm, I'm kind of going to duck the uh, the conversation around it. <laughs> Fair enough. You know, it's, like it's that Sandeep mentioned. bias thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Sandeep actually mentioned that, yes, I did change my view and I was disappointed with Pabrai buying into it. But this talk, like learning about biases and reading into them more, I came across narrative bias. So kind of the story around the company. And I realized that what I'm considering, a lot of the stuff is kind of like just my own personal bias that's against the company. And um, if you just look at the business by itself, the, it really fits into the spawner framework. It fits into scale economy shared. It, it is a great business. I mean, and even now they're reinvesting into making things better for their customers and for their vendors. I don't know. I don't see how this business um, won't be more dominant five, 10 years out. 
to me, I struggle with the idea, and I, I keep on trying to get over this bias, I guess it is, which is just investing in China in general. Um, yep. I've kind of always just thought it's a market I just won't touch. And the more I've looked into it, the more I hear people like Munger and everyone else talk about it, um, and Lee Lu, even Warren Buffett in a few interviews, I've put a few videos on my channel about it. They're all very confident in investing in that region, but I still just have that bias in the back of my mind, whether it's just um, a cultural thing or whatever. I just haven't been able to pull the trigger on a Chinese company. Mm. Well, I've got yeah, a lot of, I mean, we're, we're not, sorry, Karan, we're, we're um, I guess none of us are really macro investors, I don't, I don't think, but there's a lot of macro tailwinds when you look at China and compare it against most other countries, particularly the US. Like if you look at even something as simple as GDP growth, China is cranking out enormous numbers relative to many other developed countries, or many other countries, full stop. You can thank the uh, U.S. debt spending for that. (laughs) (laughs) Buying all the Chinese stuff on debt, and uh, they they benefit from all that extra spending for sure. And that growth is a part of the reason why I would like an investment in the region, and I do want to diversify my diversify my portfolio geographically. Like I'll still have a concentrated amount of positions, but I'd like to be spread out across the world. But it's still just the one region. I'm like, every time I look into a company, like Alibaba does seem pretty great. It's cheap. It's got its moat and everything else. But I still just get concerned about the market overall. Did you look at all into that Andrew Rosenblum potential new buy? Yeah, I did did look into that. Um, (laughs) And for the same reasons, I just... Even more concerned because it's such a small company, I started mm-hmm. to just do a little bit of digging. It didn't seem overly cheap from the first, like financials that I looked at, um, and then just being a small company in China, I was just like, I just don't think I'll ever get there with my conviction on it. So I just moved on. It's still on the watch list for now, but I kind of stopped digging into it for now. Mm-hmm. I think at the current valuation, the outcomes for Alibaba, the probability that it does well is a lot higher than it it falling even further. I mean. In terms of just the valuation. Yeah. Here's a here's a question from Scotty. Um, in like looking for new stocks or evaluating current stocks, when you're considering an investment, do you sit down and write the inversion case as part of your mental model? I think we'd all say we should, but do you actually do it? That's the tough part. Um, right, writing down like a total bear thesis. I'm sure we can pick up. I could speak to it a little bit. Um, if if I if some investment idea comes on my radar, first thing I'm doing is you know looking at how much debt they have. If they have a ton of debt, you can quickly start to imagine problems with that, um, uh, since that's an added risk. Um, take taking a more holistic approach into looking at the stock rather than just looking at top line like revenue growth or whatever growth. I think it, I think it starts from the beginning. Not so much that you're going in looking for a bull case or just a bear case, you're kind of looking at the whole case. Like what's the likely case? That's that's the approach I take. Maybe that's kind of a cop-out answer, but you're looking at both bull and bear factors at the same time because that's ultimately what a company is going to face. It's not going to be all rosy or all terrible necessarily. Um, it's probably going to be a mix of both. Just which one outweighs the other is kind of the, kind of the question. I do kind of write down a bit of a bear case. Like not, I'm not kind of a, cognitively thinking of that when I'm doing it, I just write down all my notes in a Google Doc. I'll just copy and paste anything I find, write any notes I come across, and then I'll just have a risk section. So I break down every risk I can see around the company. So I guess in a way I'm doing that, but I don't create a whole bare thesis. I do go seek out 
any short or bare thesis that I can find, but it's definitely a good thing to do. You need to understand why. Um, you need to understand the opposite side of the story for sure. And you need to know why they're wrong as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't, I don't write it down formally or anything, but I certainly have these things in my head. Um, maybe, I, maybe I should write it down. But um, one of the other things I'm doing at the moment is actually building a investment checklist, and I'm sort of pulling together lots of different investors' checklists to, as a bit of an inspiration to my own. And um, one of the things I added to the checklist, which actually may even be from the after dinner investor potentially, I know he's got a checklist on his website, so shout out to that. Um, I think one of the one of the points on there is, can you explain your investment thesis to a five year old? And um, within that explanation, you know, in very simple terms, there's likely to be maybe one or two or three core ideas in the thesis that are really going to drive the returns and the performance of the business over the long term. So. Um, inverting that and saying, you know, if it doesn't grow at X percentage per year or um, whatever those core things that you're focusing on that drive your thesis, if some of those things don't play out, that's essentially kind of the the bear case or the, you know, inversion. So that's kind of how I think about it, but I don't have them actually written down anywhere. Probably should. Is that checklist for sale, Tom? I might need to buy that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, it's pretty early days of the checklist, but um, I can send it to you later if you want. Yeah, come I on, saw the, invest, the Investing with Tom pump course on sale for nine ninety seven right now. <laughs> like, come on, yeah, I saw well, I was with Queenie that you had on your podcast, Tom. She um, sells a, it's only $10 or so, a checklist, which I thought is actually a pretty good idea. So mm. maybe it's something the viewers might have access to one day. Yeah, they are they are useful, but I actually had a question on whether I'd release a checklist. I think it was in a Q and A. Maybe I said the question was something like, "Do you have a checklist and what's on it?" kind of thing. Um, and yeah, at the time I didn't have one sort of written down, so I'm working on that on that at the moment. But I'm also keeping in mind, like I know Pabri often talks about checklists, and he's now got this massive 130 you know, point long checklist or something. And he's been asked kind of what's on that. And he's never really just fully released it because he found that when he went through and built his own checklist, that was a good sort of learning exercise for him. And the areas where he specifically stumbles oftentimes in investments are potentially quite specific to his investing strategy and his personality type and so on. So I think there's a lot to be said for, um, yeah, potentially getting inspiration from other checklists, but you've got to really go through and build it yourself, I think, at the end of the day. Uh, in, in searching for real estate deals, because I'm, I'm in the thick of it right now, I'm, I'm searching every day pretty much, um, looking for another deal. I, d I definitely have a mental checklist when I'm looking at a new area or a new neighborhood. Like first thing I'll do, go to Google Street View and take a look. Are there bars on the windows? Is, 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 does this look like a rundown area in a bad way that it's not really gonna turn around anytime soon? Um, that's usually like one of my first steps. I'll take a look at the rental market around it, like what are rents at? I'll take a look at the properties immediately next to this property, like what's going on there. Of course, looking at the property itself, of course, that's kind of the first step. But um, having that methodical checklist, um, especially when you're going into a new area or new sector, new investment, um, makes it a whole lot easier than trying to guess your way through it. I like it. There's another question there from Rahul Nath, if you want to pull that up, about 
Valuations. How much time have you guys waited without buying anything due to a high valuation? Yeah, I, I was looking at this question earlier too. Um, I've made a couple purchases this year, significant purchases. Um, one of them was Turtle Beach. Another was uh, Dropbox. And then I added a little bit more to Equity Commonwealth. But that's kind of it. Like not, not a whole, not a lot of high conviction picks because of, because of just that. Um, a lot of high valuations. Oh, and Pershing Square Holdings, of course. Um, those are kind of my, my four big ones that I really put a lot of money into relative to my portfolio. So I kind of interpreted it differently, but I guess you could take it both ways. I thought you meant if you find a high quality stock that is mm-hmm. overvalued and just kind of waiting for it to come undervalued to buy, but I guess you could take it both ways. Oh. And in that case, I have two different watch lists where I have a guess a high quality watch list of about 10 to 15 names that I really don't think I'm, they're ever going to come into valuation unless something to the market happens. So I kind of just sit them there. I know they're high quality, great companies. And if they ever, I guess they sat there for a bit over a year now, most of them didn't even come down into value during the COVID time period. So um, yeah, and I slowly add to that list, but they're very unlikely that they'll become come cheap enough, I guess. You got to have a miracle yeah, I, list somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I I have the exact same thing actually, um, and I actually can't think of any stock that's been on that really good business list that I've actually been able to buy like from from a price tip. I know um, Facebook during March last year very briefly touched a point where I would buy it, but it was like a couple of days, and I just missed it to be perfectly honest. Um, but there's been other stuff that has been in my portfolio, and I've doubled down on it. Um, you know, when, when prices have dropped and things like that. Um, but, yeah, struggling struggling to come up with too many examples there. Guys, what was the question? I, I missed it because of Wi-Fi. <clears throat> yeah, basically, how much time have you waited between find? Uh, this is how I interpret it, at least. How much time have you waited between finding a business that was maybe priced too high for your liking and then actually buying it? I actually, so last, during March, I actually bought into two Indian companies. So I've been waiting. So one of them was like a shameless clone, which is Suntech. And it hadn't been as cheap for a, for almost four years. So I think Pabra bought in around 2016. And then in March, it was all the way down. So I kind of just bought into that. And yeah. Indian investments. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Do you still look? Do you still look in India, Karan, or have you? Are you no. focused more on the US at this point? No, not at all. I mean, just um, two investments. That's it. Mm-hmm. It's Is difficult one? because the like the main shareholder owns a huge chunk of the company in a lot of cases. So up to 70 percent of the entire company, like the main founder and his family. So. You really have to know the founder in a way to be invested in the company. And I know with Suntech, the founders kind of really in good touch with Pabrai. So I think Pabrai is like a 10% shareholder. So that's why I'm a little more comfortable being invested in Suntech, even though it's a smaller company. I'm not sure I can even invest in India. I'm not, I'm not sure if Interactive Brokers does it from the Australian account or not. But most brokerages here in Australia don't even give me access to that market. Is that the same for you, Brad, or is that yeah, was that something else? Yeah, I haven't else? figured out how to do it. 
I'm sure yeah, there's ways. Um, it's, I'm sure it's different between funds and individuals, but I remember Guy Spear said for his fund, it took him like over a year to get all the paperwork processed to be able to buy into India through his fund. So that's a bit of a barrier. <laughs> I'm sure it's I'm sure it's quite different for individuals, but it took it took like four months for me as an Indian citizen <laughs> to get invested. So I'm sure really? it's going to take longer for you guys. Yeah. Wow. Four months. Yeah. And that's rough. My goodness. <laughs> there was a comment a bit earlier on from Gobi, and I definitely cannot pronounce his last name, just disagreeing with what I said about diversifying um, globally. He oh, said yeah. Munger says yeah. that Munger says people diversify only if they don't have deep knowledge on what they are holding. Um, I kind of disagree with that because I think Munger is a lot more diversified than he makes out to be, which is something Tom talked about last week, I think, on the channel, where he holds mm -hmm. a company like Berkshire that's very diversified in itself. He has Lilu that's invested into um, many different companies. And then the, what's the third one? Daily Journal, which again is diversified itself. Or uh, Costco. Like yeah. Costco. Costco as well, yeah. Um, which again, in a sense, is just such a large company that it has lots of diversification with its little businesses inside the holding company. So. Um, and that's the type of diversification that I want in my concentrated portfolio, if that makes sense. Yeah, you know, I wonder what Munger's portfolio was like in the early years of, of investing. You know, was it actually like three companies or has it always been that kind of, all right, a few bets, but within those bets, there's there's a lot of diversification. I don't know if any of you have looked into the history of well, Munger's yeah, investing. Munger I, I was going to say Munger has done, I don't, I don't know about stocks, but he actually was very heavy in real estate in the early days. Uh, I recall him getting a question at a Berkshire meeting um, asking, you know, what's the most they've ever had in one stock? And I forget what Warren Buffett said, um, but, you know, approaching 100% of his net worth in the early <laughs> days. And um, Charlie said something like, oh, I had 300% of my net worth in some real estate deals back in the day, you know, because he's because he's obviously borrowing money to, leverage, to do yeah. that. So, wow. um, so, yeah, that's what he was doing back in the day. But mm -hmm. I, I don't know if he thought about real estate differently from stocks. I imagine right. he did a bit. But, yeah. And I guess he kind of, I think there was a 10-year time period or so where he was managing money and he was outperforming to an extent, but then he just went fully in with Warren anyway. So I guess he went 100% into giving his money to Warren, in a sense. It was a blue chip stamp deal. So I think um, Mungo and Trickwood were like in blue chip stamps, and then Buffett got into it. And then ah. they kind of merged blue chip stamps with Berkshire. Yeah, th I think that's that pretty right? much the way it went down. Yeah. And um, I think if you... Um, I. Uh, I think it might be in like the back end of the intelligent investor. It's got Warren Buffett's talk with a whole bunch of track records of various value investors and mungas in there at like 19% compounded. But um, one thing I found really interesting there is I think that's like a, although that is the actual numbers for munger, I think it's sandbagged a little bit because he closed his fund like two in like 1974 or something, which was like two years into a massive stock market crash, which just like really, um, really dropped his long-term, you know, CAGA. Um, and I forget the details, but I believe he basically distributed the, you know, handful of holdings to investors at the time and said, 
just hold on to them. Um, and if you were to, you know, add two or three years after that that nineteen percent compounded track record kind of ended, I think it would actually look a lot better. So. Um, it's funny how those timing things can work very well. Like I know Peter Lynch has got this incredible track record of 29% a year or something, but the market was flying through that time frame as well. Not to say that Peter Lynch isn't a, an investment legend, but um, he had some tailwinds there as well. It's important to be lucky as an investor. <laughs> it can be, yeah. It helps. That, that should be our next video, how to be lucky. <laughs> what, what, what is it um, luck is where preparation meets something <laughs> I forget what the saying is <laughs> that, that will be our title <laughs> luck is where preparation meets something <laughs> that sounds great Yeah, I'm going to put that on my wall but, yeah <laughs> I know um, Mungus no, said something way, it's, like, we're, we're, op- we're opportunity meets preparation. <laughs> that, that's what it is. It's opportunity. <laughs> after Mung- dinner, investors just helped us out. After dinner, investors. He chucked it in the comments. Manga has said something like, um, opportunity comes to the prepared mind. Was it Was it that? Or... Yeah. Maybe not quite. So, we sorry, got the guys, gist anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a good question to wrap up on. Guy Spear announced that he holds a 20% cash position. What's your cash position now and plans for the future? Wow, that's surprising. I haven't seen that from Guy Spear, but I recall he was on a podcast with Phil Town a couple of years back, and Phil Town's like Mr. 50% cash, and Guy Spear was like, I just stay fully invested at all times. So I'm surprised to hear that, actually. Yeah, I haven't come across that myself, mm. but... Um, as for cash in my portfolio, I it's kind of strange as a small personal investor because I have cash that isn't in my portfolio technically. It's kind of house savings. I have like an emergency fund as well. So I don't count that as in cash into my portfolio. Mm-hmm. I just Any money that I transfer into my brokerage that I directly know I'm going to invest is what I consider cash. And at this point, that's 10% of my portfolio. Um and again, that's recently because I've just put some more cash in there due to some situations changing. But I think around that 10% mark is where I feel most comfortable. It's enough that um, I can use it if the situation arrives, but it's not too large that it's going to draw down my returns or anything like that. But I'm happy to be fully invested and I'm happy to take it up to about, say, 25% as a general <laughs> rule. Um, any more than that, and I'd be worried about the drawdown on cash. So... Yeah, that's my thoughts on cash, I guess. People are always so worried about the cash drag. I don't get why. Like, They're always like, oh, no, my long-term returns are going to be lower because of, of the cash that I'm holding. But you just need that asymmetric return, like low downside, high upside. And if you just focus on that in a concentrated portfolio, I think cash, even having like 20, 30, 40% cash is okay. I also think it kind of depends on the size of the portfolio itself, like in absolute terms. Because if you're 50% cash in a $10,000 portfolio, I mean, what are you going to really do with that kind of, with that kind of cash? But if you have a you know million dollar portfolio, then all of a sudden the cash allocation is getting pretty large. Um, so it's it's kind of and you can do different things. Uh, the opportunities that arise when you get more money change. So. It's, it's, I think it's kind of relative to the actual portfolio size as well. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. When I when I was first year or two in investing, I was following a lot of Filltown type stuff and I, you know, was having like 30, 40% of the portfolio in cash, but I was earning, you know, my savings rate in that first year was equivalent to my portfolio size kind of thing. So it was like, what <laughs> right. are you doing, Tom? <laughs> just just invest the thing. Um, so historically, I've always held too much cash, but that, um, yeah, I, I do agree with what Karan said, though. So a, as the portfolio grows and as, you know, my annual savings are a smaller and smaller percentage of the overall port, for, portfolio size, assuming that, you know, continues to do well, um, I'll I'll think about it. Yeah, I'll take probably my cash position a bit more seriously than I have done in the past. I, I'm, I'm a pretty big fan of the Pabri style, uh, you know, invest up to a certain percentage at, um, you know, in doubles, invest, you know, a little bit more of the portfolio and potential triples and 4Xs and 5Xs and that um, kind of approach, which um, Pabri talked about a couple of times. I, I quite like that. I try and detach a cash position you know, percentage from what's going on in terms of like entire stock market valuations. I don't really let that influence it too much. It's more like, you know, what opportunities are available to me right now. And if I can't find anything, you naturally end up with more cash. And if I find a bunch of stuff, you end up more invested. So, And it also kind of depends on how much liquidity you could pull from other places too. Like in, in my case, I have a home equity line of credit and if I wanted to max it out right now, I could basically create half of my portfolio right now, but that's not really cash, but it kind of is. Yes. The the line could be closed at some point or, or frozen, but I do have that liquidity there. So that's another consideration to make. How liquid are your investments? Can you leverage them? If that's something you're interested in. Um, if, if everything's in like a relatively illiquid, illiquid investment, then maybe having a large cash, cash position matters even more because you can't sell off your other investments to maybe pivot into something else or cover something. Um, Cause that's another thing to consider. And yeah. I, and if you're sorry, you got Tom. I was just going to say, and if you're Tesla and you run out of cash, you can always just sell Bitcoin <laughs> and then good to go. Or just issue new shares. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Frank, go ahead. Just pushing back on the cash drag idea between Karan and Tom a little bit. I think it, it really depends on how long you're holding that position for. If you work up to 30 or 40% of cash and you cannot find a good opportunity in a market due to, I guess, the current state of the market right now where it is hard to find a great opportunity that you're willing to allocate a whole 30 or 40% towards, um, if that goes on for long enough, it really can hurt your returns over the, say, five years or maybe longer, depending how long that goes on for. It's something Jake Taylor talks about a lot and um he is one person who is kind of piling cash right now um as part of almost a macro play to an extent and it has hurt his returns over the past five years and he's pretty open about that so it really depends on how long if you have 50 percent cash but you only do that for three or four months that's fine but if you really struggle to find opportunities it could really hurt returns you know i always think of uh, Munger's investment in Tenoco whenever we talk about cash like how he didn't invest anything and then suddenly he puts 10 million into one company and that goes up 8x and then, then he goes into uh, Lilu's fund. So yeah. that always kind of brings me back to cash drag is okay. Yeah. And I guess that's exactly right. But that adds the pressure on the longer you have that cash pile, the more you have to hit a home run. Is, yeah, is but where pressure I get from who? Pressure from <laughs> who? Like, 
Well, it depends who, on the topic. The Fed. Yeah. <laughs> Central banks. Yeah. <laughs> it depends. If you're trying to achieve a certain return, if you have a set goal, um, if you want to achieve 10% per year or whatever it is over your long term, mm-hmm. your lifetime investing, and you get stuck on a pile of cash for a long time, you have to hit a home run. It has to be a Tenneco or something else. It's a time value mm. of money. That's what Frank's really getting at. Yeah. I think the so more yeah, you I, compare well, yourself to the index, like the more miserable you, you are going to be. If, <laughs> if you don't compare yourself to anyone, if you're just happy with your returns, I think that's that's what's important. That is an that's important consideration point. for sure. Yeah, so I try not to do that. I, I do compare my portfolio to um, certain indexes anyway, but I have my set goal of, I'm striving to hit a 15% target, um, but that's kind of a margin of safety in its own right to ensure that I get 10%. So I'm looking for 15% returns on every investment. If I miss, I still get the 10 that I really want over my lifetime of investing. So I guess that's the target that I'm um, affected by that I would really want to make sure that happens. Mm. Yeah, to me, it's just a matter of time scale, right? Frank, it sounds like you're really... You're wanting to see that kind of consistently year after year, whereas Quran maybe is looking over like five to 10 years, right? Annualized is more what he would be looking at. So that's, yeah. Yeah, even if you underperform, like who do you have to be accountable to except yourself? <laughs> well, then you can, just hold cash forever and you can just <laughs> hold cash and never invest and just like, let it sit there. <laughs> no pressure yeah, yeah, the, the thing is you've got to have this weird, you know, combination of extreme patience but be willing and ready to swing tomorrow if something comes up. Really decisive. Yeah. yeah. That's that's the characteristic that you have to match it with. You can't be someone who who is kind of scared to invest um, and just sitting in cash because you're, you know, timid about losing money or something. Um, I think if you've got the right frame of buying to be able to put a lot of money to work, um, you know, tomorrow, then I don't think it's the worst thing in the world to have some cash around. <laughs> Louis, Louis, are, you guys watch, are you guys ready? Louis, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we'll just, uh, we'll, uh, we'll close on this one. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, as a reminder to everyone, we got our giveaway going on for next week. So on this episode, we're about to close out the live stream. Before you leave, be sure to leave a comment saying where you're watching from, and then you'll be entered into a giveaway uh, where you could potentially win a Shameless Cloner mug as designed by our very own Karan Gernani. So um, with that, um, also be sure to smash that like button. In the meantime, subscribe if you haven't already. Check out the Discord as well and join that. The link should be working. It was not working last week. That should be all fixed. Um, But until next time, everyone, we'll talk soon. Cheers, guys. All right. See ya. Are we still?